Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Someone said Happy Mother's Day to me, and I didn't know how to reply. I just said thank you. I even got a card. You think I'm kidding? Like, I got a card. Thank you. We're in the middle uh, Holy Spirit series, and so I'm not really good at the theme stuff at all, like Mother's Day, Father's Day. The only theme stuff I kind of do teach on is probably like Easter and Christmas, but the other stuff, I don't do that. And so we're going to just continue on in this Holy Spirit series, and it does not fit with the day at all. So just to let you know ahead of time, it doesn't, but I want to start by praying. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fall afresh on us, that you would empower us to go about your kingdom, service, love, grace, peace, that we would go about doing your work. In Jesus' name, amen. So we started this about a couple of weeks ago, and last week we took a look at the Holy Spirit as the third person in the Trinity and looked at how he convicts the world of sin of righteousness and of judgment, and if you have any questions about that, you can listen to last week's sermon on iTunes. So we started this two weeks ago, and we've looked at so far just how the eternal Holy Spirit, what he did in the past, what he's doing now, and so for this morning, we're going to take a closer look at what the Holy Spirit is currently doing now, but going to be carrying into the future. John wrote when he was locked away on the island of Patmos in Greece, he wrote the book of Revelation. And so we're going to talk a little bit about eschatology, the study of the end times, and maybe a little bit of what the Holy Spirit's role is in that. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 2, John wrote, And the beast, and this is in reference to the Antichrist, that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. It's prophesied that the Antichrist will come and take over the world. Governments around the world will cede to him as Satan will provide him with his power and authority over all of the earth. In Revelation chapter 19, 19, John wrote, And I saw the beast, this is in reference to the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, Jesus, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Revelation informs us of a final battle with Satan before God reclaims control of the earth. And Satan will not reign over the earth anymore. Back to Genesis. In the beginning, God created the earth and the earth was God's. And you recall from last week that God said in Genesis chapter 126, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The Trinity present there. That the Holy Spirit was fully involved in creation. Well, let's read on in that verse because it's going to give us a little bit more context about how things were created and how it was ruined. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping things that creep on the earth. God gave dominion over all the earth. He gave people and he gave them the responsibility to rule the earth. But that dominion was forfeited to Satan when sin entered the picture. Adam and Eve believed that they knew better than God. That was their sin. That they were able to discern better than God what was good and what was evil. And in their disobedience of rejecting the all-knowing God, they forfeited their rule to Satan. How did this happen? Well, in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, Paul wrote... 
Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? Adam presented himself in obedience to Satan, therefore becoming a slave to Satan. Adam forfeited dominion over the earth to Satan with his rebellion against God and became enslaved to sin, sentenced to death. So how would God restore things the way that they ought to be, which is the definition of righteousness, right? Righteousness is how things ought to be. Well, God would send his son. God would send Jesus to redeem it back. Satan said to Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verse 6, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. He said that to Jesus when he was tempting him. He took him to a high point, looked over all these things, and said, all these kingdoms can be yours. And Satan said, I give it to whom I will. He's not lying there. It's his. And Jesus didn't tell him that he was wrong because Satan was the ruler of the world. And that's why Jesus was sent, to redeem it back. And the plan would be fulfilled through his death on the cross. Now Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17-19, through 19, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ." like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christ redeemed us on the cross with his blood. And the redemption was finished at the cross, but there's a not yet aspect to the redemption. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Catch that last sentence? At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. See, the price was already paid. And everything is subject to Jesus' feet. But we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So what proof do we have that this redemption has indeed taken place? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the deposit of the redemption transaction. Jesus redeemed us. We belong to him, even as Satan is ruler of this world right now. But to prove who we belong to, we have the Holy Spirit. And so in the future... Jesus will take back what he already redeemed. That not yet will be not yet no longer. It will fulfill the transaction. And you can read about this in Revelation chapter 5 when Jesus takes back the rulership of the world. But for now, God has allowed Satan to be in control of the world. But those who have faith in Jesus can be redeemed from Satan. They may have the Holy Spirit in a not yet fully redeemed world. Make sense? And so in the current conditions, we currently continually face spiritual warfare. 
Right? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So there's this battle for spiritual saltiness. So when someone says you're salty, it's not always an insult. Right? But there are some Christians out there who have lost their saltiness. And they've lost their taste. How? Sin. Compromise. Which has severely weakened the followers of Jesus and his church. Now in the last days, the church will have little power. Very little power. And it makes me wonder if we are in the last days today. Because the church has very little power. Satan's rule of the earth will be no more and more evident to the faithful church with little power, and his rule will come to fruition through a person. The Bible has several names for this person, this evil tool of Satan. He is known as the beast in Daniel and in Revelation. He is referred to as the man of lawlessness or sin or the son of perdition or destruction by Paul. And in 1 John, John refers to him as the Antichrist. He will be empowered by Satan and he will be able to do miraculous things that will just wow the world. Like solve the deficit. He'll do stuff like that. Right? And Jesus said in Matthew 24, 24, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. John wrote in Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 14 about the false prophet working with the Antichrist. Then I saw another beast... This is the false prophet. Rising out of the earth, it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making the fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The prophet Daniel wrote a lot about this. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, he wrote, He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time, which means three and a half years. Daniel 8, verses 24 through 25. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall curse fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Daniel 11, verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done." Paul wrote of this man of lawlessness, this son of destruction in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. 
Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God? John wrote in Revelation chapter 13, verses 5 through 8, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. See, the Antichrist will rule the earth. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. See, the Antichrist will take over. This has not happened yet. But let me just share some things that are kind of uncanny. There will be a new currency exchange. An exchange without a hard currency. So your cash, your coins, checks, things like that. Cashless. A cashless society which we've been moving towards for decades. I mean, who carries around cash anymore? You're in the minority. It's like less than 10% of you. Or is it because you live in Oakland? You know, we got to be smart. We got to be smart. Now, any of you who have been to a meal with me or a coffee shop or gone shopping or anything like that, you know that I almost never carry cash. And part of it is because I want you to pay. But the other... (laughs) I, I kid. I kid. It's just not convenient. I mean, why bother stopping by a bank or ATM anymore? I hardly go to the bank or ATM. You know what the only time I go to the bank or the ATM? Is if someone gave me a check that I have to deposit. Other than that, I never go. Never. Probably because I don't have money either, but... Most transactions are done without cash or check. Credit card, debit card, e-banking, PayPal, NFC, right? near-field communication through your smartphone or Google wallet. We are moving to cashless, checkless society. That's where we're going. Now, John wrote this in Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 and 17. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. When I was a kid and I heard my pastor talk about these things, I would always wonder, like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? And then he kept talking about it, and as technology kept on going, I was like, hmm. Now you have this NFC stuff, and you just kind of wave your Google wallet over it or your phone, or you take pictures of that little sign. I don't know what they call that little thing, but you can pay so many things now doing that. So with the advances of technology, with the advances of nanotechnology, what we used to think was so unbelievable is not so unbelievable anymore. Actually, it makes more sense. It makes more sense. You have your identity attached to your credit card. They have to know who's using it. So what is so odd to have an identity marker on you to say that this exchange of currency is happening just like when people check our IDs when we do credit card transactions? And so it's just one of the pieces of the puzzle to move us towards this one world government. 
Technology has brought us closer together. The technology has brought the world closer together. For example, causes. We have causes that bring enemies together, like fighting terrorism. Have we ever worked this closely with Russia now in fighting terrorism and we're kind of getting together? People who used to be opposed to one another are now getting together to work together, work on these things. Or think about crimes that need money, which is almost everything. When you're thinking about piracy or money laundering or tax evasion, if everything was cashless and you were identified with the movement of currency, wouldn't that cripple criminals? Because everything would be traceable. Why do criminals like to use cash? Why do a bunch of restaurants say cash only? <laughs> it's not easy to trace. I give you a dollar bill, my initials aren't on that. It's just, it's not easy to trace. It's just cash. This sounds beautiful. This is a wonderful system, isn't it? And it's going to happen because this Bible said it would thousands of years ago. It's coming. Before we knew any of this technological thing and all this kind of stuff, the Bible already talked about it thousands of years ago that we would reach this day. We've never been closer to having this one world government than now. So what's the holdup? What's holding back the inevitable and the prophecies of God and the Bible? Actually, the more appropriate question is, who's holding it back? The Holy Spirit. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with his breath, and the Greek word for breath is pneuma, referring to the Holy Spirit, of his mouth and bring to nothing by appearance of his coming. See, the Holy Spirit is the one restraining, holding back, detaining this end of the world evil. And the Holy Spirit is doing this through his church, through the followers of Jesus. And when the church is taken out of that picture, there will no longer be a restraint against this world evil. Once the church is gone, the lawless one will go to work empowered by Satan and the world will experience its greatest evil in history. But first it's going to experience some prosperity and like, whoa, world peace. Whoa, check out this currency system. Whoa, this guy's awesome. And the Holy Spirit in the church, in the followers of Jesus, is what keeps Satan from moving forward with his plans to take over the world. But it's already begun. We see the consciences of people seared, as we mentioned last week. We see the arrogance of people who think they know better than God what is good and what is evil. Better than the word of God what is good and what is evil. The Antichrist spirit is already here, and many people are already receptive to it. God is being mocked. Righteousness is being despised. People are ridiculed for following Jesus. And if you really want to look crazy, tell people that you believe that the Bible is inerrant. If you want to look crazy, tell people that you believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is coming back. Have you noticed the trend of how vocabulary and vernacular is changing? You notice that committing yourself to religious faith is negatively looked upon. You're not open. You're not tolerant. 
Have you noticed that devotion has been turned into a bad word? That commitment and devotion aren't the words even used anymore. They've kind of swayed it even more. And what's the substitute nowadays for what used to be commitment and devotion? But it has more of a negative connotation. Fanatic. You're a religious fanatic. And we often see how there's this link of terrorism to religious fanaticism. And this intolerance with religious fanaticism. And it's not surprising. It's just the prep work. It's just the brainwashing. And who is holding back the end of the world evil? The Holy Spirit. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 7, John prophesied, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. But the Antichrist can't do this until the church has finished its testimony. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are the restraining force that God is using to go against evil. It's a spiritual work. Now, how often do Christians look more to politics than they look to prayer? How often do we look to addressing things in physical ways when the battle is a spiritual one? To fight spiritual battles in the flesh, you lose. It's a losing proposition. And it's no wonder the church in many cases has become powerless. We sometimes address spiritual things with physical things. And I get it. To fight hunger, you provide food. And to fight disease, you provide medicine. But when we fight the powers of darkness and the things that are spiritual in nature, we need to fight them spiritually. We need to pray. We need to know our Bible. We need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit restrains the Antichrist, and it will be in His timing when He no longer restrains, and God is in control of that. It is in His timing when He will be released. But in the meantime, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to impact lives today. We need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, what is that? Baptism of the Holy Spirit. What is that? Now we have to shift gears. Enough of this uh, revelation talk. We've got to shift gears here. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. All four gospel accounts record the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All of them. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. Mark chapter 1, verse 8. Luke 3, 16. John 1, 33. It's all recorded. Just for the sake of time. Let's just read Matthew's account. And this is John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, speaking. And he said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh the latcheth of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. I just like the old King James Version. Like, it's pretty cool. Part of these things, I like incorporate that one instead. John the Baptist prophesied about Jesus, the one who would come after him, who is mightier than him. And we read about this in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. And while staying with them, he, this is the resurrected Jesus. He died already. He's resurrected. 
ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is different from regeneration that we experience when we come to faith in Jesus. When we come to faith in Jesus, we are regenerated. We are born of the Holy Spirit. But there is a different experience with the Holy Spirit in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is also different from water baptism. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, the Apostle Paul wrote, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one spirit who baptizes us into the body of Christ, but it is Jesus who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to be having this water baptism in Lake Temescal on Saturday, and typically it's me and, and someone who has been instrumental in the spiritual life of one who's getting baptized, who baptizes the individual. And the element in that baptism is water. Right, That person is baptized into water. They are immersed in water. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is different. It's where Jesus is the baptizer, not the pastor. John the Baptist, like other pastors, baptized with water. Matthew 3.11 He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Where the Holy Spirit is the element in which we are immersed. Right? Just as we are immersed in water, in water baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is immersion in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are three prepositions that distinguish the three different types of relationships with the Holy Spirit in the Greek language. In John chapter 14, Jesus encouraged his disciples on the night of his betrayal that they needed encouragement because Jesus told them that he was going away and they couldn't go with him, and so they got worried about this. And so he told them in verses 16 and 17, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, did you catch those prepositions? With and in. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will dwell with us. And the Greek preposition word is para. It means with, which means by, beside, near, right? When we think of parallel, right? Two lines that never intersect. They're just right next to each other. And then there's this different preposition, in. The Holy Spirit dwells with you and will be in you. So the Holy Spirit dwells with us and he will be in us. And the Greek word for in is en, E-N, and it means in. That's what it means. (laughs) The Holy Spirit dwelling in you is what happened to the disciples in John chapter 20. In John 20, the resurrected Jesus appeared to his disciples who locked themselves behind closed doors because they were fearful of the Jews. And so they were locked there, and then Jesus revealed himself, showing them his wounds, and showing them his hands, and showing them his side. Now, realize that the disciples, they were already regenerated. They were already saved, born again. They already came to faith in Jesus. Now you look at John chapter 20, verses 21 and 22. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
That's when the Holy Spirit indwelled them. See, that was a distinct, separate event from when they were saved, born again. See, they were already regenerated. They were already born again. And so this receiving of the Holy Spirit was not that regeneration. It was a different experience. And from that time, the Holy Spirit indwelled in them, which is different still from Acts chapter 1, verse 4, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Before our regeneration, before our conversion, the Holy Spirit convicted us of our sin, of our righteousness, of judgment. And he revealed that Jesus was the one who could take our sins upon himself so that we could have a relationship with a holy God. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Last week's sermon. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, we come to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. When you and I accepted Jesus by faith as Lord of our life, as Savior of our life, the Holy Spirit came into our life and he indwells in us. That's N, but that's different from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Dwelling in us, the Holy Spirit works to mold, shape, conform us into the image of Jesus. And it's not by our might, it's not by our power, but it's by His Spirit that we come to relationship with Jesus. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit with you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Romans 8, verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Every born-again Christian has the Holy Spirit indwelling in them. We are born again by the Spirit into the body of Jesus, but not every follower of Jesus has the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a distinct experience from the Holy Spirit, beginning with para. He's with us. And then he's in us. He's in. And it comes after believing in Jesus. Now you might wonder when. It's up to him. Now each one of us who has been born again, we've experienced the Holy Spirit with us. We've experienced the Holy Spirit in us. But not all of us have experienced the Holy Spirit upon us. Over us. And this is the third preposition, upon, or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We had the Holy Spirit with us to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, to bring us to faith in Jesus. And when we confessed our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwelled in us. Then Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Greek word for upon is epi, like epidermis, covered, all over. Where the Holy Spirit comes over us, He comes upon us. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is to empower the believer for His service. The Holy Spirit with us is to lead us to Jesus. It's an outer work. Right? He's outside. The Holy Spirit in us is to shape me to be like Jesus. That's an inner work. The Holy Spirit upon us is to exercise the work of God through me, from me, 
And it's both, an outer work and an inner work. The Holy Spirit is working through the life of the believer for his service. Now let me give you an illustration. I have this mug, hot water. But let's say it's empty. And instead of me going to the cafe for water, let's just say that there's a source of water right here. And the source of water would be para. It would be next to my mug. Now if I began to use this water source to fill up my mug, the water will be in the mug. And the mug, the vessel, will eventually get full from this source of water if I continue to fill it, and then it will eventually overflow. Now that overflowing is a pee. It's covered, it's upon. The water is upon, it is over the mug, it is flowing out of. So we started with para. The source of water was by, it was besides, it was near the mug. Then the water was in the mug, indwelled the mug. Then it progressed to overflowing, a pee over the mug. And, and the water source is the Holy Spirit. And we are the mug. And then the Holy Spirit begins with us. Then he dwells in us. And then God continues to pour in us until the Holy Spirit is overflowing. It is pouring out of us. It's flowing from us. The overflow of the Holy Spirit from us. It's a completely different experience. Now, all Christians have experienced the Holy Spirit with them and in them, but not all of us have experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the overflowing of the Spirit. In the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, John wrote, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit has not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is the epi experience of the Holy Spirit. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, the overflowing of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. The Holy Spirit has been with us and in every believer, and God wants us all to be filled with his Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. The verb filled in that verse is in the present perfect tense. So another way to say this would be, to be continually filled with the Spirit. But to be filled by the Holy Spirit does not mean that we are like Jesus internally without any outpouring of who we are in Jesus. There are too many Christians who are just concerned with what's happening inside of them. And there's no outpouring or little outpouring of the Spirit coming from their life. It's just all internalized. How much can I pray? How much can I study? How much can I build my own character? How much can I do all the stuff within me? But there's so much more to that than in the Christian life. It's not all about you. Let's not get selfish with that. The Holy Spirit wants to give us so much more. He wants us to overflow. But I think so many Christians, we put a cap on ourselves. Like, I'm filled. Okay, good. I'm 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 filled. I'm good, I'm a good person, I don't lie, I don't steal, I don't cheat on my taxes, and I study the Bible, and I go to church, and I do all this stuff. And they think that, you know, I go to church, and I go to a home group, and I do all this stuff. That's it. But that's not overflowing. 
Sure, the Holy Spirit's in you. You're being made more and more into the image of Christ internally. But where's the outpouring of who you're becoming like? And it's not something that we determine. That's the Holy Spirit. But how many of us want to overflow with the Holy Spirit? You can pray for that. You can ask for that. You can desire that and be in service to the kingdom of God. Now in Acts chapter 2, it's the day of Pentecost, and this crowd began to grow because they were just amazed. They were astonished at what was happening with the followers of Jesus. Then Peter preaches about Jesus to this crowd, how they killed the Messiah, and then the Holy Spirit convicted them of sin, of righteousness, and judgment, and they recognized that. Now Luke recorded in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 39, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. See, the Holy Spirit was with them and in them. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be upon them, overflowing out of them as evidence of what happened in the book of Acts and in the early Christian church. The world Changed through the power of the Holy Spirit for the service of the kingdom of God. Now verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. See, the Holy Spirit didn't stop at the apostles. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, aren't we in 2014 part of everyone? Right? The Holy Spirit is for today. And I don't think the church needs more programs. I don't think the church needs to follow the newest trends and fads for doing church. I don't think the church needs these methodologies that are working for corporations and therefore we're going to try to bring them into the church and try to do what they're doing out there to be successful. I think we need the Holy Spirit. That's what we need. And I hope that the teachings from this Holy Spirit series will help in living in the fullness of the Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to come upon us, to baptize us, to be empowered to do things beyond our ability, beyond our gifting, beyond our talents. To serve the world in such amazing ways that there will be this spiritual awakening. The church and each individual believer needs the Holy Spirit to do a fresh work for us to affect change in our community. But do we really want it? Because I see more of this. I see way more of this. Because how often do we pray for it? You know, we want to institute all this social change and people are getting busy, but a lot of it's out of the flesh. How much of it is dependent on this and uncapping it and letting it flow? And are we asking God for the Holy Spirit to come upon us, to overflow from us? Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father who is in heaven give good the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now let's not think that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the end all of the Christian experience. It's not. It's just a beginning to the Holy Spirit's power working in the life of the believer for service in his kingdom. And it's one of many experiences with the Holy Spirit. 
We need to be filled by the Holy Spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And as we walk in him and after him, we, we are following. We need the Holy Spirit terribly, badly today. We need the baptism of the Holy Spirit so desperately to transform our communities. And the world, it's not getting better, is it? Three girls kidnapped for 10 years? world's getting better? Really? We live in a day when hearts are hardened, or minds are closed, where consciences are seared to the gospel. What we need to do is fight a spiritual fight. We need to fervently pray, patiently wait for the Holy Spirit to fill us to overflowing so that our communities are changed for the better. And I hope that you as individuals and we as a church, that we pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For us to be empowered by the Spirit to overflowing, to do a fresh new work for His glory. And we are weak without the Holy Spirit. And the positive changes that our city needs and the world needs have no chance to thrive without God. There's no chance. We're out of time here. But we're going to continue our Holy Spirit series next week, looking further into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending the Comforter, the Helper, the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would fall upon us, Holy Spirit. We need you. We're so limited in our own capacity, in our finite minds, in our physical bodies. But you, Lord, are infinite. And you can bring about change that is miraculous, supernatural, and we ask for that. We ask for that to flow out of us. And Lord, you are with your para, with each person here, working on their heart, their conscience, their mind. I pray, Lord, for those who have hardened themselves to you to open themselves up so that you may indwell them. God, may you indwell each person here as they come to faith in you, Jesus. And for those who are hardened themselves to that, Lord, may you continue, please, to work on them. Lord, for those of us who have you in us, we pray for you to be upon us, for you to be over us. In Jesus' name, amen.